0: Amen. Will y'all please take a seat. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, I'm going to fix my mic real quick. That way it doesn't keep making that sound because I'm bumping up against it. I'm trying to follow up from last week. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, my name is John. I serve as pastor here at the Springs and we are so glad you've come to spend this Sunday with us. The first thing I want to say is, hey, Mary, Christmas. For those of you who just love this time of year, we're so glad you're here thinking through it, wanting to come and to celebrate. Welcome. We know Christmas, it represents a time of year for a lot of folks who who look forward to it, who it brings difficulty, who it brings grief, who it brings stress. And for some folks, I can remember thinking, what's the difference between Jesus, Santa, the Easter bunny, and every other good fable I've ever heard? Wherever you are on that spectrum. Merry Christmas. We pray that through this time, you'd really come to see what it means when we say Merry Christmas and all that that entails. But before we jump into that, I wanna share with you guys a story about an instance in my life where for those of you that know me, you won't necessarily be surprised. But I did something that was rather foolish. Rather foolish. It started out really well intended. My family, originally, I'm from North Georgia. My parents, they live in this neighborhood. I'd gone back for a holiday or something like that. I I can't remember if I was in college or what. I went back and I was hanging out and we lived, we lived on this part of a golf course that backed up to woods and these woods I grew up in. Like I spent so much time out there. There were these trails that me and some friends had basically worn. I had spent countless hours out playing in those woods. I'd come back and I wanted to go for a jog and we live in North Georgia. So our neighborhood has an insane amount of hills. So I was feeling particularly lazy this day. So I thought to myself, hey, why not take a little nostalgic jaunt through the woods? I'll go back through these trails that me and friends grew up. I'll get to see all this stuff. And it'd be kind of a fun adventure. So I took this jog, and I start running down these trails through these woods. I don't get farther than 10 minutes, which for me is like a really big deal. Yeah. So all that to say is I don't get farther than 10 minutes, and I'm running through the woods, and there's this creek that I swam in all growing up. And all of a sudden, I'd say probably eight feet in front of me, I see something move. Right, I'm in the middle of the woods. I see something move, but I can't really tell what it is. I did what I would recommend most people do, and I just stopped. I stop and I wait to see, and here's what happens. I see this slither begin to go. Yeah, folks who hate snakes are like, I knew we should not have come. (laughs) But I begin to see this slither start to move. And I've always liked snakes. I now have a healthy respect of snakes, right? But I've always liked snakes and I can remember seeing this slither. And man, it was a significant, maybe I'm telling it in the same way people who still tell stories about fishing, like the fish was really this size, but they somehow it comes out this size. It seemed like, not kidding, a solid five foot water moccasin. It was massive. And it sees me coming, it tries to stop. I move forward, it realizes I know it's there. And it goes and it goes off this cliffside. This creek bed, it had this five-foot drop-off into a river right here. Rivers, that is embellishment. Creek. right? But it was a significant creek, like you could swim in it me and friends would jump into it grown-up. But it was almost this embankment where there was this almost five-foot ledge going straight down. The snake goes off tucks in, and I could lean over, and I could just barely see this snake nestled into, like this cut into the side of this like dirt face drop-off. Well, I like a lot of people, not like a lot of people. I like snakes, I'm interested in snakes. So it was one of those where I wanna get a better look. How many times do you get the chance to really see up close and personal, but at a safe distance, this water moccasin just chilling? And I'm out there, it's by myself, a bunch of people are shaking their head at me over there because they know where the story goes. So I have this genius idea Right where this snake is cut into the rock, there is this log. It was a log that was once on the embankment. And you can tell it had fallen because a bunch of its roots were still right there into the side of the embankment, into the dirt. So I go up and I can lean over in the snake. Y'all, I'm not kidding. It's two feet straight down a little to my left. And I go and I lean over and there's this log coming out. And I can't quite see it. It's curled up right there. I don't know if it's looking at me, but it sure feels like it is. And I take my right leg and I go out and I test the pressure of that log. That log that's cutting out over the creek side off the embankment that's attached from past roots into the side of the dirt hill. And I test it, it seems pretty stable. So I take it, I lean out, and I plant. And I'm sitting there and I'm not kidding, I'm looking at, we'll just call the snake Nagini, right? I'm looking at Nagini, right? No, no Harry Potter fans? Yeah, okay, half y'all are like, that's witchcraft, that's evil, right? The other half are like, Nagini, Harry Potter, shout out. But I'm looking at Nagini, we'll just call it Nagini, and I'm putting my weight on this log, and man, it was like a mystical moment. You know, I'm staring at this snake, I'm avoiding jogging, everybody's winning, the snake's fine, I'm fine. Three things happened to me, three things. First, I realized I am falling. Second thing I realized... I'm underwater. Third thing I realized, the entire embankment with that log and my weight had given way. I had brought down with me the embankment, the log, and with it, the snake. And I then realized for the third thing, I'm underwater and the water moccasin is right by me. I'd like to say I kept it cool. I'd like to say I responded calmly. I'd like to say in that moment, there was a trust in the sovereignty of God. I didn't have any of that. I straight panicked, freaked out, have no idea how I got out. But seemingly, I shot straight up out of that water, landed on the embankment, freaked out. Immediately, I'm trying to think through, wait, was I bit? Like I'm overthinking the whole, like, is there adrenaline? I didn't feel it. I don't know what's going to happen to me. Where's the snake? It was terrifying. Like, even snakes in water, super creepy. I'd pick sharks all day over snakes in water. I share that because I came out, I jumped on that side. I was so mad. I was so angry. Not because I was wet because I almost died with, a, with like a water moccasin, yeah, but I was so mad at the dirt embankment, I was so ticked off at this log, and I'm sitting there and I'm getting riled up and angry, and I'm all upset because of this snake, and now I'm wet and I'm mad at the embankment, I'm mad at the log, and I start to realize something. There's no one to blame but you. Like, like, I can remember sitting there and being like, I am entirely responsible for my lack of footing, for my terrible decision-making, for my entrustment to find stability in something that was not stable. As much as I wanted to sit there and be angry and vent and get all emotional and blame everything else, the only person, the only thing I could blame, it was me. I hadn't been stable from the moment I reached out and I started testing that log. I hadn't been stable from the moment I put both feet on it. I hadn't been stable the entire time I fell to the water. But even though I hadn't been unstable, you know what I did want to do? I did want to blame everybody and everything else. Here's the reason I start with that story. Here's the reason to start with that. Is there was something that happened to me in that moment where I shifted gears from like first gear to sixth gear, where emotionally I went into overdrive in terms of being upset. I wanted to find fault in other things, but really the fault, it was entirely with me. I think about that especially as we approach Christmas, the Christmas season. No, I don't think many of you are as dumb as me to go on a jog and do that to where you're gonna find yourself in the water with a snake. I don't think that. But here's what will happen. There will be moments where all of a sudden you will think a situation, a conversation, seeing a family member, wishing you were seeing a family member that was no longer there, where all of a sudden there's a moment of stability, a moment of peacefulness, and then something will happen. Something will change, they'll say something. You'll find out you didn't get the Christmas bonus. Your wife will say something to you and upset you. Your husband won't come and help in the kitchen even though you feel like the entire time you're trying to take care of everybody and he's just watching football. Something will happen where there was once peacefulness, once stability, and it'll be gone. The reason I share that is because right now we're in the middle of a series we're in the middle of a series that we're calling All I Should Want for Christmas. All I should want for Christmas. We here at the Springs, we love gifts, we love presents, we love all that, but it's been our best attempt to how do we come and realign and focus this season on what matters most. We've talked through everything, humility, We've talked through what does it look like to have a right reverence of God. How should we be asking for that? And the thing I want to talk about today is all I should want for Christmas is stability. Stability. As I thought through even this talk and preparing for it, there, there was a problem with even the word stability. Why? It's not a good enough word. To the best of my ability, the English language didn't really have one. Because what I mean by stability is this over lapping perspective of almost one's internal wellness. So so think emotional, think spiritual, think physical. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The overlapping sense of one's internal well-being. That's what I mean by stability. It's, It's your spiritual health and your emotional health. And as we go into the season, I absolutely think that is something Jesus Christ, through his spirit, he gives to his children. But for so many of us, when we think about holidays, when we think about buying Christmas gifts, seeing in-laws, going out of town, traveling, bringing family into town, how will we coordinate it all? How do we make all the family? Really, if we're honest, we just kind of get through, hope it goes well enough to where there's no real family explosions or fights. And then at the other end, there's this breath and the sigh of relief of, whew, got through another Christmas. Because Christmas is true, because God was born in a manger, followers of Christ, we do not have to get through anything. That's not to say there's not tough times. That's not to say that with Christmas and holidays can bring reminders of loss, grief. Pain, being around family members who share in no way the same set of values and yet trying to be gracious and cordial as you want to have a heart to care for them well, but in reality, you'd be fine if you never saw them again. I'm not saying those things aren't true. But what I am saying is true, is all we should want for Christmas stability, peacefulness, joy, patience, contentment of God the soul. I think this is something a lot of people want. I came across some studies even this past week just looking at it. A friend sent me, loneliness, loneliness, even the researcher, this is from US News and World Report, even the researcher who did this study, they reached out across a thousand different random chosen Americans. Even the researcher said they were shocked at how high the number was. Loneliness, they reported that three out of four Americans struggle with a serious sense of loneliness. I don't know, there's 120 people here? 130, you can do the math. It's a significant number if it so applies to this room. Alcohol abuse. Here's what I'll say, alcohol abuse. Specifically, I'm not speaking to you right now, having a beer, there's freedom for that. Steward it well. I'm talking about abuse, specific binge drinking. There's a website, it's government funded, alcohol.com. It's a recovery website, and they put out promotions with holidays. And how do people go and cope and turn to alcohol? And there's two holidays where there's this massive spike. Christmas, New Year's. On Christmas, 23% of men, 18% of women will binge drink. On New Year's Eve, 44% of men and 40% of women will binge drink. Here's what I'm saying. Not not every alcoholic and not every person going to binge drink starts out with the motive and the mentality of, hey, I'm going to do this so I can feel better. But every person seeking binge drinking is trying to feel better. Everyone's from the chronic and the functioning alcoholic all the way to the one where it starts out as, hey, it's been a rough holiday. I'm just going to try to take the edge off. And all of a sudden you wake up in a different place. Third one Anxiety, anxiety, because remember, why why does this matter? Stability is a blessing from the Holy Spirit God gives to his people. It's why he was born in a manger, it's why he came. I I could list off countless anxiety and depression rates. I I could list off countless. I came across one though, it was pretty interesting. This is Monica Roots, she's the Vice President of Health Services and the Senior Medical Director of Behavioral Health for Teladoc. She said, when we as physicians, and she oversees basically think like CVS Minute Clinic Online, when we think about diagnosable conditions, they'd say throughout the year that they're putting forward, about one in five have a true anxiety disorder. But I usually think about it like this: a hundred percent of people have real anxiety during the holidays. 100% of folks have anxiety during the holidays. Remember what we sang? Joy to the world. Go tell it on the mountain, yet on the inside, anxiety. What, why is that? There's last minute shopping, there's, there's traffic. There's a month where you, if you want to keep up with the rat race and think that expressing love, and I got nothing against presents, we're buying them for our daughter, expressing love comes through gift giving, you got a much higher bill at the end of December. You begin to think through hey, what are year in promotions? What's year in budgeting? You have to see family that you wish you weren't seeing. And oftentimes we wish that there were certain family members that have since gone that in reality we wish we were seeing. There is real grief, there's real difficulty, and there's just insane lines to get out of Best Buy as you're leaving Creekside past Bucky's because that light is awful. Can I get an amen on that light? Hey, if anybody's on city council, you gotta change that, man. Like, that's just bad. But all that to say, I wanna sum up why I think this matters. And I'm gonna rip off a guy's quote. I wish I'd said this. Peter Scazzaro, he's a Christian author, he's a pastor. He has this phrase that he says, it is impossible to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature, it is impossible to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. What was the purpose of today? We're driving towards stability, wellness. The word we'll see here is the heart. The heart. And far too often, what I can think in my life is hey, I am a victim of my feelings, my thoughts, what happens to me, my circumstances, well, here's the truth, y'all. Here's the truth. Because he was born in a manger, Christ came. He was victorious over death because of his victory. I'm not a victim to my emotions. That's not to say you can't experience real pain, no. But what we do with that, how we dwell in that, how we manage that matters. The way we're going to look at this is we're going to be in Proverbs chapter 4. Proverbs chapter 4. We're going to read verses 20 through 27, but really we're going to highlight verse 23. It's a famous passage. I'm sure many of you know it. We're going to highlight verse 23. It's the key passage where many of us, if you've ever been to a dating series or a marriage series, you talk about guard your heart, we're going to break down how, yes, that can apply to dating But it also applies to every form of the pursuit of holiness in your life. That's verse 23. And then we're going to really talk through how do we do that. Because here's the summary that I think this text, this text you could teach a lot out of it. I absolutely believe this is an embedded theme throughout it. Our stability church, emotional, spiritual, peacefulness, contentment, joy, our stability is our responsibility. No one is more responsible for me and my emotions through Christmas, through New Year's, through every day of the year than me. And because of God's Holy Spirit within me, I am not a victim. I can, by God's grace, have victory. Victory. So as we look at this theme, here's what I'm putting before. Our stability, it's our responsibility. Proverbs chapter four, if you turn in there to tell you a little bit of what's going on, it's written, the whole book is written by the wisest man who ever lived. There's this theme throughout it of what is biblical wisdom. We talked about it last week if you wanna go learn more of a true definition of what that really means. But chapter four, he's setting up this theme of there's a path of wisdom in life. And Solomon, he wrote this wisdom literature to his son, as he pleads with his son, walk in wisdom. And you'll see in verses 20 through 22, he'll set up, here's why it matters. And he's going to tell us how to do it the rest of the time. So if you've got a Bible, turn with me, Proverbs chapter 4, I'm going to start in verse 20. My son, he's writing to his son, be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart. Remember that word heart. For they are life to those who find them, and healing to all their flesh. Who, who doesn't want more of life? Who doesn't want more healing? Solomon's writing to his boy and he's saying, Hey son, son, this will bring you life. This will bring you blessing. And he sets up this summary, summary, almost thesis statement here. Verse 23. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. My my summary theme out of that text is our stability is our responsibility. As you even think about it, the word keep there, here's what that really means. Guard, protect, oversee. You could almost envision one, right? As Solomon was writing this, he would understand from Jerusalem, okay, here's what it would be. There would be a gatekeeper at the wall. Their job was to allow in the good guy and keep out the bad guy by any means necessary. And then he goes on, hey, keep your heart. It's right there. Is, Is what he's talking about a physical organ of the body? No. It's figurative language. He's speaking to the theme of stability, internal wellness. Like the heart, and you see this theme all throughout Proverbs. If we had more time, we'd show you the lineage through it. It's including everything like your intellect, your emotions, your thought, your decision makings, the behaviors. It's what your life really represents. It's driven by stability. Internal wellness, of the soul, he's saying guard your heart, not just in dating, which by the way, you should totally do, but in every area. And then he goes on, and he starts talking about how. How should you guard it? With what intensity should you guard it? How seriously should you take this on December 23rd, 2018? With all vigilance, vigilance there, he's just doubling down on the same theme of keep. He's saying, hey, you gotta be watchful, You have to be alert, you have to be ready. One one scholar I came across, man, he taught it this way, and he said he broke it out in Hebrew. If you know Hebrew really well, I do not know Hebrew really well, so I trust other people who know Hebrew really, really well. Right, he came and he said it this way. The Hebrew breakdown, really what he's saying is, guard your heart above everything else. Make it your top priority. Anybody here have a safe in their home? Anybody here have things that they protect? Savings account with a password lock? We protect what is precious. We protect what we treasure. My family, I lock the doors at night. Why? I protect what is precious. He's saying the same thing here. Keep, protect what's precious with all vigilance. And then he starts to tell us why. For from it flow the springs of life. The springs of life, man. He's doubling down on the theme of heart there. Your translation, it may say the wellspring. But what the wellspring is, is, it's really the external that everyone sees. If the heart's the internal, the wellspring is the external. It's the behaviors, it's your capacity and ability for joy. And man, and I love all he's saying is the heart is upstream. What is downstream? is the wellspring. If you want to live, as we'll see in a second, an abundant life, you have to keep watch over the heart. You must take stability seriously. So how do we do that? How do we do that? He answers that question for us in the next four verses. So jump back with me with your Bible. We're gonna answer now the how. If if that's what he's calling us to, now we're gonna talk about the how. Verse 24, put away from you crooked speech and put devious talk far from you. Let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze straight before you. Remember this word. Ponder the path of your feet. Then all your ways will be sure. He like a good father to his son is saying, hey son, think about your pursuit of faithfulness and wisdom. As you do that, It will go well with you. Who wants us to know that? God. Christ was born in a manger. Why? That it might go well with us. First, through realizing he was the promised Messiah and the coming king. And second, realizing when we live according to his ways, it is a better life. Let's read verse 27. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. So verse 23, he sets up what? He's saying, hey, you got to take your stability seriously. you got to take responsibility for it. Keep your heart. He breaks out here with four different sections of how to do that. The first one, verse 24, put away from you crooked speech, put devious talk far from you. If you and I want to pursue stability, peace. This one says, watch what you do. Say, watch what you say. I spent some time this past week thinking about that and even reflecting on my own life. Where were the moments of serious conflict? Not just with family, but with friends. And it wasn't always started by something either I said or they said. But the vast majority of them were. How do we pursue stability? We watch what we say. He's saying here, put away crooked speech. You have to almost get rid of the parts of your heart that is true that's still true in my heart. You know you're probably going to mess this up if before you get to, to Christmas dinner, Christmas day, or day after, or whatever your family tradition is, you've already started having a conversation with that person before you get there. Or, or you've turned to a spouse or turned to a boyfriend or just turn to a friend and said, hey, if they say this to me again this year, if they're passive aggressive this way again this year, here's how I'm going to respond. Church, I'm not saying to ever lean out of conflict. We are called to be peacemakers. But as we do that, we must watch what we say. The second thing we have to do in order to pursue stability, to keep our heart Verse 25, let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. We'll see in the verse right after this, but what he's talking about is he's writing to his son. This whole chapter, the context, there's this path of wisdom. And he's saying there's an intentionality to where you set your gaze, where you focus your heart, what you see. For you and I, as we go to keep our heart, as we strive towards stability, This Christmas. He's saying, be careful what you see. Be careful what you see. And and he doesn't necessarily mean it literally as in what you just look at in terms of your entertainment choices. Right? Or or how you'll go and because you'll be around different people, it's out of your norm, all that kind of stuff. The things you'll choose to put in front of you they will be different than what you would probably do if it was at your own house. Do I think that applies here? Of, Of course, but really what he's saying is Church, do not forget to focus your gaze, what you see on the purpose of Christmas is to be more like Christ. Not to get through the holiday, not to make sure your kid gets every gift they want, that you and your spouse are amicable. No. That's settling for something far too cheap. The purpose of Christmas is to set your gaze on the Son of God, and through that to become more like Him. It matters what we see. The third thing right here in verse 26, ponder, love that word, you know what that word means, ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. The third thing that He's telling you and me as we go to pursue stability, that internal peacefulness. He's saying it really does matter what you think about. It matters what you think about. Watch what you think. Watch what you think. For me, for some reason, I almost take holidays like this as like a break from the norm. Where I get to go out of town and with that, it's oftentimes very easy to leave behind a routine, a thought pattern, anything like that, and I just go step into a new environment and just away I go. And every day I just go with the flow. That is good. Don't try to be entirely controlling over your holiday. It's not about you. You're there to serve. But where I miss it, though, is all the moments where I have built in reminders in my life here, in my structure here, in my routine here of how I connect, how I think about God. And I have this faulty assumption, and I would never verbalize it this way. I would never say it this way. But to where I step into the other environment, and all of a sudden, it's like, yeah, it's been six days since I thought about God or spent time with him. We, we prayed at the Christmas dinner. That's not setting our gaze. That's not me setting my gaze on Christ. It's not me watching what I think. Why? My stability, my peacefulness is my responsibility. The fourth one. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. As we pursue stability, what, what he's saying for you and for me, how we do that is we watch what we do. We watch what we do. He sets up the beginning, do not swerve to the left or to the right. Some of you who spend a lot of time in the Old Testament, you recognize that language. It, it's used a few different places, a few different times, but, but it's this meaning of do not get pulled off course. Do not get distracted from the pursuit of God, He's saying, hey, don't, don't waste Christmas. And then he says, and do not, and, and turn, it's a positive command, turn your foot away from evil. It's like he threw in this blanket statement, and hey, anything that is not of God, it's not worth it. Anything that's not of God, don't do it. So what is he asking from you and me? He's asking us to fight for stability, to keep our heart. Really, the way that you do that, if you were to summarize, hey, watch what you say, watch what you see, watch what you think, watch what you do, it's management of what you allow in and management of what you put out. You remember the language at the beginning of keep your heart, keep, watch, protect, guard that visual of almost the, the guard at the post that monitors what comes in and what comes out. We church, because of the Holy Spirit within us, we're responsible for that. I had a friend of mine, good friend, in the army, he was an officer in the infantry. He was in charge of a unit where in Afghanistan they'd been deployed, they, they were put at this position in the spot, I don't know where and all those things, but they were set up at, at a major road how major, I don't know, but a major road, and their job was to monitor this checkpoint. So he and his unit were positioned there, and their orders were fairly simple. It was, don't let through bad guys, let through good guys. Does that make sense? Now, in that environment, as you might guess, or as you might think through, that can be very difficult to discern at times. So things that matters is, hey, what clothes were people wearing? Were things that could perhaps conceal weapons, conceal vests with inside vests? Like were people amicable? Were they willing to do or were they not? Was it just one? Was it with a group? How'd they do it? He told me a story and he said, I'll never forget the moment. There was this night where he was out and he's the officer in charge, so his team is sleeping, but he'd been set up on a position in rotation. And off in the distance, they just see this small light coming towards them. You can hear this small kind of buzz this small light coming towards them. They had this massive PA system. They had a translator there too, but this massive PA system, and they start to yell out, flash your lights, slow down. Right? They're just trying to get the the, the individual's attention. Why? Because they have no idea who's driving towards them in the middle of the night. Are they good or are they bad? All they know is their job is to keep the checkpoint. He comes, the individual keeps driving. What do they do? They escalate it. They start yelling through the PA system. He's getting close enough. People are getting nervous. Now the rest of the unit has woken up. Why? Because they hear the entire PA system. Everyone's grabbed their rifle. They've come to their positions. Behind those, you're just describing those massive like concrete barriers you almost see alongside the road. And they're standing beside those, every gun fixed and focused. He gives permission to one of those in his unit to not at the person, but off to the side, fire warning shots. Why? It's escalating. He's responsible for keeping the post. The individual comes. They fire another warning shot. He tells all his men to be ready. He does not know who's there. The individual comes up to a safe enough distance to where he stops. He's on a motorcycle. He has a vest. They say, show us what's under your vest. He goes, He shows the vest. Just a regular guy. And they look and they can see. He had headphones. The entire time they would called warnings, the entire time they would shot to warn him from coming, he seemingly just couldn't hear. Now, obviously, he put him through a fright, so what they did is they pat the guy down, probably a little more invasive with him than perhaps some other folks, because why? Who drives up on an American installation in the middle of the night doing that? That's just foolish. But I share that because I remember him saying, my job was to keep the post. I was responsible for what came in, both the good, as well as keeping out the bad. And that was something he took very seriously. Church, that's the language here in Proverbs four. Keep your heart, how seriously? With all vigilance. We are responsible for what we allow to take root and to build a home in our heart. As we pursue stability, it is our responsibility. Why does this matter? Why does this matter? I think there's two really big reasons that I think about selfishly on why I want to be great at keeping my heart with all vigilance. The first one, (laughs) Quality of life, quality of life. Far too often, you come and you engage with folks, and again, no one ever uses this language. But there's almost this embracing of spiritual, emotional mediocrity. Where like joy in Christ, it's far more aspirational than it is actual. Like a faith where when people look at you, they get around you and they say, no, that honestly, that looks good. That quality of life, far too many of us, we settle for things. I settle for things that are far too cheap. John 10.10, it's a famous phrase, the second half of it. Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and that they may have it abundantly. Jesus didn't come to just make you whole. He, he, He came that you would overflow. He wants no settlement in my soul of it's good enough. He wants a pursuit of him in his presence. There's fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Why does it matter that we keep our heart? For from it flow the springs of life. There's a fountain there. And God's looking to show off that fountain for your good and his glory. Quality of life. Second thing I think that matters, and this is something, man, it's really hit me this Christmas season, is I also do believe keeping our heart as Christians, taking responsibility for our stability, our, our internal well-being, not being a victim of circumstance, but allowing honest grief. But, but because of Christ living in victory, I think it's a complete apologetic to a non-believing world. What, what I mean by apologetic is it gives a defense for the Christian faith. It tells people there's something different about them. It's the moment when folks come up to you and say, "Man, I just got to ask you. You just seem kind of different. You seem peaceful," or, or, or they see you in the midst of tragedy. Yes, mourn, but fight to sing. They see you in the midst of a Christmas holiday full of anxiety, perhaps not able to provide for your kids with gifts in the way you want, yet realizing, hey, Christ is enough, Then We are fine. We are good. And they see your entrustment of the soul to him. And there's a that's attractive. We are meant to shine bright. And part of the way we do that is we have a life that's honestly marked by Stability, emotional maturity, joy, peace, contentment. I don't want to settle for a life that's not that, yet I I tend to. I I don't think about it that way, yet I find myself so quickly in the default of it's good enough versus Christ is enough. Like in him, I can know abundance. Abundance. And I can know real joy. I thought about this in two different ways in my life. Two different ways. Two seasons of how I used to go to Christmas parties. Two seasons of life. One season was years ago. And it was marked by, hey, every time I'd come back home or I'd go back, I always knew here's what would happen. I'd meet up with friends. I'd meet up with friends and here's what it was. It was just one party. We never knew what it would be. There was always some Christmas or holiday theme. We'd make it something like that. And then you show up and man, and I'd start drinking and I'd just try to find fun in the season of Christmas. Far too many of those times where I sought to find the abundant life. It was way too cheap. It left me with headaches. It left me groggy. It left me with moments where I had friends for 15 years, they refused to talk to me after. Like I pursued this good life. I would have never said, hey, I was going there to bring pain and devastation to my life. I was going there, because man, I wanted to have fun. I wanted to enjoy it, but here's the reality. I was drinking from a poisoned well. I remember the first time after trusting Christ, I went back home and I got that invite for that Christmas party. When I trusted Christ, next two and a half years, I didn't drink at all. Why? Because I had, I had a weird relationship with drinking, weird, a broken, sinful relationship with drinking. And so I just didn't mess with it. And I can remember talking to my community group right before going, saying, hey guys, I still wanna go. I still wanna hang out, but hey, here's the provision I wanna set in my life. Because I do, I want to keep my heart. Was I discipled or mature enough to know that language? No, but I knew where I was. It's not where I want to be. And so I connect with them and I go back to this meeting and I can remember hanging out with friends and, and just my personality, it was it was well-intended life of the party. And in that one night, two things happened. I had the chance to tell a bunch of people about how I found life somewhere else and how for me, even though they'd seen me go to church, I got to sit there in this confusing way say, no, 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 I, I would have said I was a Christian. I know, I know, I know. It's super confusing, I know. But really, I became a Christian. I trusted Jesus Christ for the payment of my sins. I believe that he died and he rose from the grave. And it's given me a new life. Like I have a peace and a joy. To where am I still tempted to get lost in the bottom of a bottle? Yes. But is there a more abundant life that's easier to choose? Yes. The first thing I got to do is for one of the first times in my life... I got to have an example, not in self-righteousness, but out of glorifying God, he's worth it, he's good. And the second thing, it was super boring and annoying hanging out with a bunch of drunk people. That was the second thing that happened. It just wasn't that much fun. Woke up the next morning, just kind of drove home, and not that I'm against parties where folks get drunk. I'm not, whatever. It's just not really what I do now. It's just not as much fun. To where in sincerity since that time and before, man, before I became a Christian, I pursued getting and living high. I was always left low. And now through acknowledgement of my dependence on Christ, my belief, and he came in a manger, he helps me live High in a redemptive way. All because by his spirit, I started to realize my stability, it's my responsibility and he wants me peaceful. He wants me content. He wants me emotionally mature and in control of my emotions, not tossed to and fro. He wants me slow to anger because it's better than the mighty and he, church, hear this, he who rules his emotions, his spirit, is better than he who takes a city. All the power, influence, wealth in the world means nothing if you're not controlling your own emotions and spirit. And because of his spirit within me, I now stand a chance. What has he called for you and me to keep our heart? What does that mean? Our stability, it's our responsibility. How do we really do that? Watch what we say, watch what we see, watch what we think, watch what we do. For me, as I thought through this, I think there's two key things. Like, There was a lot of application within that, but there's two key things I put before you. If you're staying in town, stick to your spiritual routine. Fight for it. Get creative if you have to. Sin does not take off the holidays. As saints, let's not do the same. Keep your routine. The second thing, and this helps me, whenever I feel things, not not like everything, but, but like strong emotions, you know the ones where it just kind of sticks with you. Figure out why you feel that. Figure out why you feel that. For some of you, it'll lead you to repentance, where it's driven by arrogance, entitlement, selfishness, anything. And for some of you, where it may end up leading, and this is something where you could preach on this every Christmas, is towards resolving conflict. Church, we're meant to be peacemakers. If you don't know how to do that, that's what we taught on December last year. Go back, listen to the series Peacemakers. Figure out why you're feeling that, why. Our stability, our stability, it's our responsibility. My dad, he he called me, I don't know, a month ago, a couple weeks ago, and he shared with me, hey John, really close with my parents, I'm blessed for the privilege of going home at Christmas is a good thing. And I know that's not true of everybody. But he called me and said, hey John, for Christmas this year, we're gonna change up some of it, we're gonna shift some of the usually the traditions, kind of the things we do, kind of all the different setups. And man, that's where for me, living here, and I love living here, I, I, I do not get to go home as often as I'd like. And so when I go home, like my wife and I, we're gonna go for eight days. Like, we're going to try to soak up every ounce and see family and have traditions and remember all that stuff. And my dad's saying, hey, John, we're going to shift up a couple things. I know it's a little different. We're going to change it. We're, we're going to be more accommodating. And every change he was making was going to make Christmas better. Every single one of them. Here's how I responded. Angry, frustrated, entitled, selfish. Self-righteous. I can remember, and even trying to like control my spirit, saying to my dad on the phone, saying, Dad, hey, hey, dad, no, I, I hear all that with that calm voice. I, I hear everything you're saying. I just want you to know, that's a miss. You made a decision for the whole family, and you made the wrong decision. I wouldn't have done that. I think it's gonna impact more people than what you think. You missed it. That's what I said to my dad. My dad's the man. Why did I feel that way? Because I can be a self-righteous, entitled schmuck. And I'm capable of that. I felt that way because in that moment, I was not keeping my heart with vigilance. I'd let something in that God had called me to keep out. In that moment, my stability, I put on him. And I was wrong. I share all that in my dad. What my dad is great at is emotional maturity and stability. And as he shared that, he shared, okay, son. And he even said, because there were some ways he could have communicated better. He said, hey, I'm, I'm sorry, but okay, son. We continue the conversation. We talk about, I don't even know what we talked about. Why, because in the background of my mind, the whole time, here's what I was thinking. I'm mad, and the longer I stayed there, the more I also became convicted and embarrassed about how I just talked to my dad and we go to come get the moment where you know how when people start to use the conversational topics where they're going to kind of hang up the phone you start to get those cues and you see him coming and I start to think I'm not going to say something Nah, I don't need to I'm not going to say something and I start to realize you have to say something and before we go There's this moment where I say, hey, Dad, before we hang out, here's what what I need to do. I need to ask your forgiveness, Dad. What I just did and how I treated you, and I said I was self-righteous. I was judgmental. I was entitled to what I wanted. And I was foolish in trying to make this about what I want. I really am sorry. Will you forgive me? And my dad, man, he's great. Of course, son, of course. And we went on to talk about this. We went on to talk about, as we approach this season of Christmas, you and I, we have every responsibility to know We don't come and celebrate just some cute nativity scene. We celebrate the son of God being born in a manger who walked this life perfectly. Why? That he might die for my imperfections. He rose from the grave proving everything he said was true. Christmas always points to Easter. Easter always remembers Christmas. And I missed it. I made one of the greatest acts in all of history where Christ came to serve me, I made that about me. You know what Jesus promises to those who believe in him? Rivers of living water. That's what John 7 says. What, what does Solomon say? Keep your heart with all vigilance. From it flow the springs of life. You know what I did not give to my dad? Rivers of water as I remember Christ. My dad didn't miss it. I missed it. Church, this Christmas, all we should want for Christmas, it's stability, it's that internal wellness of the soul, it's peacefulness, it's joy, it's seeing other people people pop off emotionally and yet responding with grace and pursuing peace in the midst of it. It's coming and not expecting non-believing family members to finally go and change the way they treat you. Don't expect that is we take responsibility for that. What what do we sing with our lives? Joy to the world. Our stability is our responsibility. Let me pray that we would know that. Father, I I do, I still, I am forgiven, I am free from the moment where I talk with my dad about that. But Father, I pray in, in my repentance as I go home May I be the most servant-hearted, gracious, go-with-the-flow, engaging, intentional person at my family gathering. May I not make your birth about me. Would you come, and as I go to do that, God, would you help me to fight for an emotional maturity that thrives, that drives my spiritual maturity? I cannot do that without you. I thank you for the promise of your spirit that as I strive to keep the heart, I know I can. I pray you'd bless these people as we go tomorrow to different places, different services, or we return, or we go out of town, or family comes. May they come and may they see he came in a manger that we might live with an abundant life. Lord, may we never settle. May your spirit refuse to let us joy to the world. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, y'all, if you're here tomorrow, we're gonna have a service at five o'clock. We'd love for you to come and join us. If you're going somewhere else, get after it there. But all that to say is, go in peace. Have a great week of worship. Merry Christmas.